The Interchange is brought to you by PG&E. PG&E is helping to electrify corporate fleet vehicles. And if you're a company or municipality and you want to electrify your fleets, get in touch with an EV specialist over at PG&E at pge.com forward slash GTM. This podcast is brought to you by Uplight. Uplight has a suite of software and engagement tools that deliver customer experiences like Amazon and Netflix. Utilities, if you need to up your game on customer experience and customer satisfaction, you should turn to Uplight. And if you want to learn more about Uplight's expanding services to help remake the utility-customer relationship, visit uplight.com. This is The Interchange, conversations on the future of energy from Green Tech Media. I'm Stephen Lacey. I'm a contributing editor at GTM. I'm in Boston. Welcome to the show. Shale Khan is away this week. I can remember the first time I heard about the Koch brothers. It, maybe it wasn't the first time, but it was, I think, the first time it stuck in my mind. I was actually very late to the party in thinking about the Kochs. It was the spring of 2011, and I had just gone to write for Climate Progress. Lee Fong a reporter for the parent publication Think Progress, had just dropped this video a few months earlier on YouTube of him interviewing David Koch on the street outside the Capitol building in D.C. It wasn't a formal interview. It was just him seeing Koch on the street after this inauguration for congressional candidates, and he pinned him down and started peppering him with questions. David Koch is just standing there, kind of polite, smiling at first, almost smug, and then he starts looking irked that these young guys with a video camera won't stop talking to him. He keeps fiddling with his cell phone, putting it up and putting it down. He's looking away. Standing between him and Lee Fong is this guy named Tim Phillips, president of Americans for Prosperity, who keeps trying to shut down the interview. Lee, Lee, come on, we've done the interview. That's enough. Now, come on. Lee, 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 Lee is not uh, doing this interview. I think it's uh, 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 regulating CO2 excessively is going to uh, yeah. put, uh, 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 really damage the economy. Yeah. Do you believe in climate change yourself? Lee, 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 Lee no, David, you don't need to do the interview. This is enough of the interview. So, do you believe in climate change yourself? I think we're done though? right here. Uh, well, I, climate Lee, does done. fluctuate. It goes from uh, hot to cold. We have ice ages. But we do you believe climate change? Lee, Lee, in retrospect, these short videos don't reveal all that much. But at the time, they were a pretty big deal. It was one of the only times that David Koch had talked to someone outside of a very controlled interview. And I remember thinking, why is everyone so obsessed with these guys? It was around this time that the Kochs started getting villainized in this very cartoonish way. And it was so outlandish, I just couldn't quite grasp how influential they were compared to the image that people were projecting. In the years since, though, so much good journalism has been devoted to understanding how the Koch brothers, Charles and David, created the most influential political machine in history. And it started decades before I or most of the public had ever heard of these guys. It's become clear that without their money and devotion to climate denial, 
starting all the way back in the 1990s, we would be in a much different place today when it comes to climate policy. A few days ago, David Koch passed away, and it suddenly got everyone talking about the Kochs again. And it got me thinking about them too, not just their role in politics, but about this company, Koch Industries. It's one of the most influential energy and industrial firms in the world, but not many people have heard of it. The way the Kochs have run their company tells us a lot about their approach to conservative politics. So this week, I've got an interview with a journalist who spent the last six years covering Koch Industries. His name is Christopher Leonard, and a few weeks back, he released a new book, this massive new book. It's called Cokeland, The Secret History of Coke Industries and Corporate Power in America. Now that David and Charles Koch are back in the zeitgeist, I wanted to use this opportunity to talk with Christopher about their influence. Christopher Leonard, welcome to the show. Thanks for being here. Thanks so much for having me. Cokeland is this 700-page book on the Coke machine and the influence of corporate power on politics. It took you, if I understand correctly, six years to write and research. So many people have written about the Cokes over the years. What were you trying to do differently with this book? Well, the one thing I wanted to do that I didn't feel has been done at all was to explore this corporate empire, the private corporation that made... Charles and David Koch so rich in the first place. I mean, David and Charles Koch, when you combine their fortune, which I think is the appropriate thing to do because their fortune is based on the value of this company, they are richer than Bill Gates or Warren Buffett. And that really raises a question of how did they get so rich? How did they amass one of the largest private fortunes in the United States? But even beyond that, what drew me to write about this corporation is as a business reporter, I realized this was such an important story. I mean, you can explore the entire American political and economic system by telling the story of this one corporation, just because it's so diversified. I mean, this is an institution that includes blue-collar manufacturing workers and labor unions. It includes high-flying financiers who are trading derivatives. It includes private equity deal makers who are buying other companies. And, uh, you know, crucially, it includes one of the largest corporate lobbying shops and political influence operations in the United States. So taken together, you can really use the story of this company to explore the history of American capitalism over the last 50 years. So you, you point this out that Coke Industries is bigger than Facebook, uh, U.S. Steel and Goldman Sachs combined. So Americans know of the big industrial giants in history, General Electric, Ford, DuPont. Why have so few people heard of Coke Industries? Okay, this is by design and it's very intentional and it really traces back to the root of what this company is and what it does. So first of all, Coke Industries specializes in the kinds of businesses that underpin modern civilization. I mean, this is the kind of stuff you couldn't boycott if you wanted to. Coke Industries sells the fuel people use to drive to work. It sells the building materials that their office building is made out of, from the insulated wall panels to the windows to the carpet. It makes the materials in our clothing, like nylon and spandex, the stuff in baby diapers and exercise clothes. It makes nitrogen fertilizer which is one of those products that nobody thinks they buy, but it's literally the bedrock of our modern food system. So Coke is quietly involved in all of these vitally important businesses that everybody uses every day, but that never has Coke's brand name on it, if you will. And what I discovered in reporting on this company is that from the very beginning, secrecy 
has been baked into Coke's corporate strategy. And there are a lot of reasons for that, but I think the basic reason is that at heart, even though it's involved in all of these businesses, Coke is what I would describe as a trading company. They've been trading energy supplies, fertilizer, fuel, and, and, and the, the way to really succeed at that business is to outsmart your competitors, to know more about what's going on in the world than anybody else. And, and when you're operating in that environment, you don't want other people to know what you know, and you don't want other people to know what you're about to do. So this is a corporation that has been private and has prized secrecy since the very beginning. And how did they grow? Uh, was it mostly through acquisition? I mean, what were some of their big moves that allowed them to grow so fast uh, under Charles and David? Under mostly Charles, if I'm, if I'm correct. You're, you're absolutely correct. And it might be helpful to, to start from the beginning a little bit because, you know, this is a privately held firm that's intentional and it's owned by the Koch family. The company was started by Fred Koch, uh, you know, really in the 1930s. Fred Koch died of a heart attack in 1967 and his 32-year-old son Charles took over the company and basically split ownership with David. But Charles Koch has been CEO of this institution since 1967. He's been CEO since Lyndon Johnson was president. I don't know of any other corporation that's had a single leader for that long. So what you see is an institution and a corporation that really reflects the strategy of one person, and that's Charles Koch. And, and to understand his business philosophy helps us understand how they got so big. And, and it, it is through acquisition but a very particular type. From the very beginning, Charles Koch has fought very hard to keep this company privately held. And the reason for that is that, you know, the, the CEO and the board is not answerable to Wall Street shareholders. So Koch Industries doesn't have to think about their profits and revenue on a quarterly basis. They're not obsessed and worried about what's going to happen in the next three months or the three months after that. This is a company whose, whose leadership can think on a horizon of two, five, or ten years out. And this has allowed them to be remarkably nimble. And I would say the playbook for Coke is that they plow their profits back into the firm. They don't pay out huge, rich dividends. So they have a lot of money on hand to make moves. And they can make moves when publicly traded companies are not willing to do so, okay? Koch's strategy is to buy companies that are distressed. You buy on the downside, if you will. You buy when the economics of a business don't look great. And then you hold on to that asset, whether that asset is a bunch of nitrogen fertilizer plants or a giant publicly traded firm like Georgia Pacific. Coke Industries keeps itself in a position to buy these companies and hold them for the long term. And I think a lot of this traces back to the firm, that, to, to the concept that Coke has been in energy markets from the beginning. So this is a company that's very accustomed to volatility. They know that when there's a down cycle, there's going to be an up cycle later. So they've gotten so big through long-term strategic thinking plowing the profits back into the company and having the nimbleness and the ability to buy assets and other companies when the markets are down. One of the things that has always puzzled me about Coke Industries is how different it is from 
many other similar companies when faced with this environmental transition, with this environmental pressure. So you look at any other company, 3M, Johnson Controls, General Electric, Siemens, Exxon even, some of the oil majors, they're all investing pretty heavily in or at least paying lip service to clean technologies. And they're saying, okay, here's how we can restructure our businesses. We can do what we've always done, but we can make it cleaner. We can invest in renewable energy. We can try to uh, make our products better because they actually, you know, the people who are leading these companies believe in it or at least believe in it enough because there's enough pressure on them that they, they need to start talking about it publicly. Coke Industries is so different. And I think it's kind of rare in that respect. Uh, can you just talk about why they made the business decisions they did and, and ultimately how that influences their political work and the way they see the world? That's a great question. And okay, first of all, we have to consider the momentum and the inertia, how this institution had its beginning. When Charles Koch took over the company in 1967, Koch Industries was deeply enmeshed and deeply embedded in the fossil fuel energy system. At the time, Koch Industries was the largest crude oil gathering company in the United States. What that means is Koch was the company that would show up to an oil well, pick up the oil, and take it to market. And it was the largest company like that in the, in the United States. Uh, secondly, Koch was one of the largest global energy traders in the world, buying and selling super tankers of oil, trading futures contracts, and things like that. And finally, Koch was deep in the refining business. One of the first moves Charles Koch made was to buy a, a, a massive oil refinery in Minneapolis, which is a really remarkable story in itself. It's been a stunningly profitable refinery for decades. So what you see is that the company didn't start from neutral. The company started with a deep investment in the fossil fuel system. And the Coke method, if you will, the Coke theory, is that you build on what you know. When you branch out into new businesses, you don't just arbitrarily go into different segments of the economy. You go into industries where you can leverage your expertise, where you really know what you're doing, and when you know the business better than any of your competitors. So what that means over time is that Coke has naturally gravitated to fossil fuel-based businesses, the energy sector. I mean, whether that's, you know, operating natural gas pipeline networks, uh, natural gas refineries. Uh, Coke is huge today in, in the crude oil supplies that have been unearthed in Texas from the fracking revolution. That is a major business for Coke now. So what all this points to is a company that in 2019 is deeply invested in the fossil fuels business. And it, it's sort of hard to overstate the economic inertia of that decision. And, and I mean, I, I, what I feel like you're going at with this question is, is this issue of, you know, why not just diversify into renewable energies? And why has Coke expended so much political capital on the issue of global warming and not putting a price on carbon emissions. And, and I think the reason is, think about the investment in fossil fuels and what that really looks like. I mean, Coke has billions of dollars sunk into the, little, the literal physical infrastructure of the, of the fossil fuels business. Two massive oil refineries in the United States, massive pipeline networks, a global trading system of energy supplies – 
if the fossil fuels business starts to decline, if we limit greenhouse gas emissions and we stoke renewable energy sources like wind and solar, uh, think about the depreciation of those assets over 20, 30 years. Think about the declining revenue with the lack of oil processing that would happen. I've estimated, and based on talking with people inside the Coke network, losses from that transition could be measured in the trillions of dollars over 30, 40 years. And incidentally, this is a company that thinks on a 30-year horizon. So, you know, while it is true that Coke is adaptable, Coke makes lots of acquisitions, you can't ignore the economic reality that it has its roots in the fossil fuel um, industry. There's a story that you tell about reporting this book that I think encapsulates that approach. You were talking to uh, a former Coke employee, and you asked him what got him up in the morning. And he said one simple thing, carbon. What did he mean by that? Well, you know, this individual was a senior, uh, former senior lobbyist at Coke Industries. And, and this was a few years ago. And I really wanted to understand Coke's political influence operation. Because, you know, as I said at the beginning, I really wanted to kind of paint a portrait of corporate power in America and how our political and the economic system works. And, you know, corporate influence of policy is just a huge part of that story. So I've been spending years interviewing Coke lobbyists and political operatives, and, and I wanted to know how they do their job how they do what they do, why they do it better than other people. And and so I did pose the question uh, to this guy, what got you up? What was your front burner issue? And when he said carbon, what he means is the very large public policy fight over what I would call just simply putting a price on carbon. One of the key things about this business is that the carbon emissions are free. Um, I interviewed another guy who was a conservative Republican congressman who described it as being able to go to the trash dump and dump all of your refuse for free without paying a price. It's, it's, this would, is, that be some, is that, would that be Bob Inglis? That indeed is Bob Inglis, a, a fascinating and important story about what happens when Republicans wake up to the reality of climate change. A short answer is Coke helped drive Bob Inglis out of office. But what Bob Inglis saw was that, you know, this is a classic uh, externality issue of markets. When you can pollute for free, it helps your business. So, you know, starting in 1990, there's been a public policy debate in this country about putting a price on those carbon emissions. And Coke Industries has been extremely aggressive in making sure politically that no price is put on carbon and no limit is put on carbon emissions because doing so would dramatically change the economics of the fossil fuels business. I don't want to be naive here because many of the biggest fossil fuel companies have played a very strong role uh, over the last few decades in sowing doubt about climate change. But at the same time, a lot of these companies, particularly in recent years, the biggest oil majors, for example, the biggest industrial giants have said, yeah, well, we do support a price on carbon. Uh, if it brings predictability for the business, we think we can support these clean energy technologies. And we can also start to, you know, we can we can continue to serve our legacy business while reducing emissions and try to build other businesses. And the Cokes, what, make them, what makes them so unique is 
they said, absolutely not. This this is the way the world needs to be. And it seems to go back to their special brand of libertarian politics. And the fact that this company itself is so tied to Charles and David Koch, particularly Charles Koch, and, and their special brand of politics. So can you just unpack that a little bit for me? What What about their politics and their way of seeing the world makes them unique when some other companies are starting to make this transition who are in the same areas of business. Coke Industries has truly been unique, has truly been unique in its utterly uncompromising position on this issue. And you are exactly right that it traces back to Charles Koch. And and let's talk about that vision that you just referenced. You know, Charles Koch, I've, I, I interviewed him about this in 2015. He released a book about his view of the world called Good Profit. And, you know, Charles Koch, I describe him as an engineer. I think that's the most important thing to maybe understand about his mindset. This is a guy who got multiple engineering graduate degrees from MIT. And ever since he was young, Charles Koch has been steeped in political theory. His dad, Fred, was one of the co-founders of the John Birch Society, uh, literally a secret society that believed the federal government was sort of a front group for communist uh, tyranny and oppression. So Charles Koch was really steeped in, I think, conservative thinking and far-right thinking from a young age. But uh, Charles Koch augmented that belief system with the teachings of these Austrian economists like Ludwig von Mises and Friedrich Hayek. And, And ultimately, the view you come to is that in, in Charles Koch's mind, the, the, not only the superior way, but truly the only effective way to organize human society is as a voluntary market exchange system. That, that means everything is private. Everything is determined by price. There's no social security. There's no Medicare. There aren't public roads. All of this is done by corporations. All of this is done by the private market. And in his view... That's the only way to do it, because if you start intervening in markets, you distort prices, you create um, distortions, and essentially taxes and government programs only create more problems than they solve. And the reason I bring up the engineering is that this, this view is unmovable. I mean, Charles Koch sees it as like a blueprint for society, and you can't argue with a blueprint. If you try to cut corners... Uh, and change the laws of physics on a blueprint, the building is going to collapse. So since at least the 1970s, Charles Koch has been patiently trying to reshape American society to reflect this view. And I mean, he's very clear about it in his, in, in the, his correspondence, in his letters, in the speeches he gives to the think tanks that he has uh, himself founded and created, that he wants American society to be more of a libertarian utopia. And I think that's why you don't see this sort of retreat that maybe ExxonMobil is publicly talking about, that they will accept a carbon tax or they will accept something like that. At at root, you're getting down to an ideological fight uh, in terms of the Koch network, and they are not going to back down. I mean, the prologue of of the book is called The Fighter, and it kind of walks through Charles Koch's 50-year career. And what you see is that this guy has a spine of steel, and he does not back down on what he considers to be key principles. This podcast is brought to you by Uplight, a utility software and analytics leader that you once knew as Tendril and Simple Energy. That's right. 
Tendril recently made acquisitions of First Fuel and Energy Savvy and EEME, and then it merged with Simple Energy, and the result is Uplight. This is a company that now offers an end-to-end product for utility customer engagement. It transcends silos within power companies and helps improve interaction across every channel, program, and solution. This enables utilities to provide the personalized experiences that customers have now come to expect. Or if you want to learn more about Uplight and what they're up to, it's uplight.com gtm to learn more. You know, corporate fleet vehicles are getting electrified at a pretty rapid pace. Electric buses are starting to take hold. Big corporations are recognizing that they have to make their vehicles electric. And PG&E is doing the best that it can to help electrify school buses and transit buses, delivery vehicles, all sorts of vehicles for municipalities and corporations. So if you're in California, you're in PG&E service territory, you can get the financial, logistical, and construction support for electrifying your fleet. Get in touch with one of PG&E's EV specialists to learn more at pge.com slash gtm. So the book centers a lot on Charles Koch. Obviously, a lot of people are talking about David Koch as well because he just passed away last week. I'm wondering what his role is in this establishment of the libertarian philosophy that guides the company and its political activities. Who is David Koch in relationship to Charles Koch? Well, so there were four Koch brothers, Charles, David, Bill, and Freddie. Uh, Freddie and Bill have nothing to do with the company, and they haven't since the 1980s. There was a bitter fight between the brothers for control that I don't think we necessarily need to get into. And at the end of the day, David and Charles ended up owning 80% of Coke Industries. But David Coke has been described to me as as a silent partner when it comes to the business. Charles Coke stayed in Wichita, ran this company, Um, really with an iron hand. He developed the strategy. He developed the operational, you know, tactics. And David Koch was a full-throated endorser and partner who, you know, uh, green-lighted Charles Koch's activity but didn't run the machine. David Koch moved out to New York. He, He lived a very public life. He gave a lot of money to philanthropies. He put his name on you know, museum wings and cancer research centers. Charles Koch never did things like that. And, and when it came to the political network, I, I think it's very fair to say that Charles Koch set the vision. Charles Koch developed the strategy. And David Koch was there as a full partner who, who went along with it, um, but, but wasn't necessarily the driving force. But I mean, David Koch, through his acquiescence and, you know, through his support, allowed the, the money to flow from the Koch fortune. Uh, David Koch would give speeches at, at these Americans for Prosperity events, which is a, sort of this grassroots group that Koch formed. So, so David Koch was a full partner and, and more of a public face. In, in fact, it was David Koch who ran as the vice presidential nominee for the Libertarian Party back in 1980. But interestingly, it was Charles Koch who in the background was sort of writing the letters to the head of the Libertarian Party and controlling the money flow and doing that kind of backroom operation. So David Koch has been more of the public face of this political and economic machine, but Charles Koch has been the the sort of strategic driver behind it all. You know, I familiarize myself with 
the Cokes very late in the game by journalistic standards. It wasn't until a couple years into the Obama administration when they became a household name and it became apparent how much they were spending to counter the Obama agenda and were spending on climate change in particular. Uh, I was a business journalist and, and science journalist focused on climate and, and clean energy. And so they've been doing this for a long time, though. I mean, Americans for Prosperity have been fo- founded, I think, in 2000. 2004, many years before, and uh, they and there's a revelation in your book that Charles and David Koch had actually been funding and supporting climate skepticism and climate denial all the way back in the early 1990s. And a lot of people were surprised by that revelation because uh, they knew that they had been funding uh, anti-climate change groups, this small cadre of, uh, you know, fringe conspiracy theorists and, and climate skeptics for, you know, a decade, a couple decades. But to go all the way back to 1991 was kind of a surprise to folks. Talk about how they got involved in climate skepticism and denial, and and it's how far it stretches back. Well, yes. And if I could please rewind the clock even further to 1974, um, as Charles Koch was just emerging as the CEO of Koch Industries, he founded a think tank in Texas called the Institute for Humane Studies. And he gave a speech to this think tank in 1974 in which he laid out a political vision that was breathtakingly radical. And I hate I hate the word radical because it's just so charged. But, uh, I mean, let's put it this way. 1974, in this speech, Charles Koch is saying that Republicans and CEOs are basically socialists, okay? They've bought into this idea that, that government should intervene in markets and business leaders have sacrificed their own principles by you know, agreeing to stuff like you know, public highways and things like that, okay? And he says, we need to execute a patient project to reshape American society, and it's going to have these different components. We are going to fund the raw material of ideas by creating think tanks like the Cato Institute and by funding university research centers like the uh, Mercatus Center at George Mason. We're going to start lobbying in Washington, D.C. and and use corporate lobbyists. We're going to use litigation. Uh, he, He laid out a plan to reshape American society, and that's how that's how you saw the creation of this multifaceted political influence machine. And and so let's fast forward up to the year 1990, um, which is when we see some of the first evidence that Koch is casting doubt on the science of climate change. By this time, Koch's machine is uh, fully operational. It's, It's starting to get more money and it's well integrated. And I think the most important parts of it are the corporate lobbying shop in D.C. It's one of the biggest in America right now. It's about a block from the White House. Then you've got this network of campaign donors Charles Koch has put together that can, that can put more money into a campaign cycle than a political party during some cycles. And then finally, you've got this boots-on-the-ground activist network of Americans for Prosperity that can really activate real people to go knock on doors to come protest in Washington, D.C. And as I've stated... One of the key targets of this political machine has been the issue of climate change. And and in 1990, there was a real threat to the fossil fuels business in the sense that George H.W. Bush and other Republicans were very clear that, wow, the science behind climate change is terrifying. 
This is a huge problem. And if I could please state here, the science behind climate change is not complicated. The confusion comes in predicting these exact consequences. You know, when is when do we reach a tipping point? So how many how many parts per million of carbon is the tipping point? And scientists are very uh, cautious and full of caveats when they talk about this stuff. So they use words like uncertainty. And in 1991, the Cato Institute, one of these think tanks Koch created, held a, a conference talking about the uncertainty and the doubt around climate science. And they helped push the Republican Party back off the plate and to politicize this issue. And let's fast forward another 20 years to 2010. Uh, you know, Koch, uh, uh, we talked about Bob Inglis earlier. I mean, this is a conservative Republican from South Carolina who is alarmed by the science of climate change. And Koch helped organize Tea Party rallies in Inglis's district to um, protest him. They stopped giving him money and they gave money to a primary opponent named Trey Gowdy. They put him out of office. Koch burned down the moderate wing of the Republican Party that wanted to do something about climate change. And, they, and, and they've been patiently working on this project for decades. Well, there's an interesting addition to that story and I think speaks to the power of the Kochs. Bob Inglis eventually went to go start this group called Republic EN and they're a small group of conservatives who are trying to raise awareness about climate change and they've been trying to rally the the small climate caucus in Congress and you know they've been at this for years and they're doing some really good work in espousing conservative climate solutions but they just they can't really get that many Republicans to talk about this issue uh, it's hard to create a safe space for them partly because of a lot of the money that the Kochs have put into campaigns to try to silence folks and, and essentially politically threaten them if they talk about climate change. Well, I mean, I do. And you're exactly right. I mean, this is maybe one of the biggest impacts and one of the biggest legacies that David and Charles Koch will leave behind is how they have reshaped the Republican Party. You know, recently, John Cornyn, a senior uh, senator from Texas, sort of dismissively tweeted that, you know, the, it's the hottest summer on, on record, but hey, it's summer. Summers are warm. It's this kind of uh, dismissive attitude that the, that the Kochs have engendered, that if you even acknowledge the reality of climate change, you are crossing a line and you're breaking orthodoxy. And, you know, Bob Inglis is a guy from Traveler's Rest, South Carolina, I would describe him, these are my words, as a conservative who, who believes in gods and God, religion, capitalism, and markets. And he has been trying to steadily promote this idea that markets have a role to play in solving the climate change problem and stoking the new energy sources that are going to be the foundation of our, our system in 30 years or so. Uh, Koch has in, 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 in Inglis's view, they continue to hound him. Uh, Inglis attended a debate um, at, hosted by the Libertarian Reason Foundation that Koch funds. And, you know, there were anti-Inglis placards and buttons that had been printed and put it in the seats. And, you know, that stuff doesn't happen without money. 
And it, it just seems like this network is continuing to hound this guy even, even after he retired from Congress. I have, over the years, been to a number of these climate denial events. Uh, they were put on by the Heartland Institute um, and a group that's you know affiliated with the Cato Institute and some of these other libertarian groups. And they're not serious events. They just are not. Uh, it's, it's a pretty fringe group there. It's a very uh, insulated group of folks who have been at this for decades now. Their communication efforts are not very good. If you read their work, it's fairly shoddy. Um, it's just not a very well-organized group without a lot of external money. And I'm wondering, how do you take an unserious group of folks like that and turn them into a serious political machine that can influence almost all of the Republican Party? Is it because Charles and David are particularly good at what they do, or is it just because they have a lot of money? Well... I, I look, my, my honest answer is it's a confluence of the two. First of all, an ample supply of money helps elevate voices that would not be taken seriously otherwise. You know, it's kind of ironic. You hear a lot of this idea about crony capitalism and how destructive it is for the government to intervene in markets. But the Koch network has intervened in the market of ideas in a way that has created a bubble or artificially inflated the the impact of voices that are not serious as you say um, and and not rigorous so so money helps money plays a role money can rent the ballroom at the hotel it can fly people in to hold a conference and that really matters but there is another very very important element of strategy and expertise that has made this so effective and you know, I'm not going to say that the Coke Network invented this playbook per se. Uh, you know, big tobacco for decades has been very adept and very smart at uh, influencing the public debate without leaving a lot of fingerprints. But I think Coke Industries has taken that strategy to a true, true science. Uh, let me let me please give you an example. And, and and first of all, as we said earlier, Coke Industries is involved in commodities trading and very opaque dark markets where the strategy is to execute trades without letting anybody else know what you're up to. I interviewed traders uh, for years to kind of learn how they do this, and it is striking to me how similar the political influence operation is. To, to have an impact, to have an effect without leaving a fingerprint. I'll give you one example. During 2010, Congress was debating cap and trade. Well, I remember that moment, and folks who were following this issue at the time will remember a commercial with Newt Gingrich on a couch with Nancy Pelosi talking about supporting a climate bill. And a lot of Republicans were behind this idea of cap and trade at that time. That's right. And as Koch's own political operatives told me, the key was back the Republicans off, make it clear to Republicans that this is not supportable and that they cannot support this option. So to do that, Koch leveraged its expertise to make it appear that there was, you know, broad public opposition to this bill, even when there wasn't. So, so this is why at the time, Koch Industries secretly funded a think tank study by a group called the American Council for Capital Formation, or ACCF. Koch secretly funded a study by ACCF that found 
that if the cap and trade bill was imposed, the American economy would be absolutely devastated. And you know, experts at the time said, "Wow, a lot of the assumptions in this report are pretty extreme, and this is a super big outlier." But what Koch was able to do with this report was to amplify its message through the network or the constellation of think tanks and political groups that Koch had started that also didn't carry Koch's name, like the Institute for Energy Research or the American Energy Alliance. And that AEA group, by the way, was headed by a former Koch lobbyist. So these think tanks took the study that didn't have Koch's name on it, created political ads based on the nightmarish statistics from that study, and then ran those ads in the home districts of key legislators like Lindsey Graham to make it politically impossible to support a cap-and-trade bill by saying that it was going to you know, destroy the energy system, reduce Americans to poverty, essentially. And so you can see the way that Koch makes its own ideas appear that they have far more support than they really have. If the Kochs didn't decide to take on this issue of climate change so early on, would things be different today? So it's very difficult to talk about a hypothetical. Um, climate change has never been an easy issue. I, I'm sure you read that book by Nathaniel Rich, Losing Earth. Absolutely. Yeah, you know, I mean, he's talking about a lot of these early debates. It's not like this thing was going to be a no-brainer. And it might be a little too glib to say that we would have put a price on carbon by now were it not for the Coke network. Um, it is absolutely fair to say that they've played an unparalleled role in delaying action and even derailing action on this front. And um, it, it's delayed the effort for sure. And, and, you know, it's hard to say categorically we'd have a cap and trade system or a price on carbon now. But they, they have definitely played a role in making sure that we have with that we do not. At this point, we know the Kochs as these cartoon villains. Is there any widely held perception of the Kochs or the Koch network or Koch industries that you think is wrong? Well, there sure is. And I'm really glad you brought that up. You know, I, I've, I'm, I'm, I'm very critical of, of the Koch's actions in politics. But a big part of the reason I wrote this book was to try to de-cartoonize the Koch brothers, if you will. Here's one of the surprising things. Okay, you see the picture of David and Charles Koch on protest signs. And I know when I went into this, I pictured these kind of billionaires who are just sitting on top of a of an oil refining system that was belching pollution into the sky, and they're just sort of quietly collecting their billions. But, you know, this organization, Koch Industries, is, is truly impressive, and I would say even admirable in many ways. Charles Koch is not short-term greedy, like some trader on Wall Street who's just looking to get next month's bonus and bail out of the market before it crashes. And, and the, the long-term strategic horizon they use is something that corporate America writ large is going to have to reclaim. I mean, corporate America today is devouring itself because of a super destructive short-term incentives. And, you know, even big companies like, uh, you know, Johnson & Johnson, General Electric, you name it, they have become slaves to the quarterly report and to short-term incentives. E politicians on a two-year re-election cycle in Congress can't think big anymore and can't do big projects anymore. This needs to change. And, and Coke Industries 
and and what David Koch was part of, okay, and what has to be considered part of David Koch's legacy was an institution that thought long and hard about the long term and and acted with the long term in mind. Christopher Leonard is a business reporter and author. We've been talking about his new book, Cokeland, The Secret History of Coke Industries and Corporate Power in America. And he joined us from his office in Silver Spring, Maryland. Christopher, thank you so much. This was really enlightening. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. That is going to do it for the show. Thanks again to Christopher Leonard for the conversation. Shil Khan will be back in our next episode. If you want to go revisit some of our other best interviews with journalists and researchers and analysts, just go to uh, Green Tech Media and check out our back catalog. You can also find them anywhere you get your podcasts. And go ahead and give us a rating review if you haven't done so already. Thanks to those of you who have. We really appreciate your support. Uh, find us on Twitter. I'm there. Shale's there. Interchange Show is there. We are retweeting reactions to the show. We get show ideas from our listeners through those channels. Uh, they are really helpful. So please, if you have feedback... We may not get to respond to you, but we certainly read almost everything, and it does influence the way we talk about things on this show or the types of stories that we cover. Thanks again for joining us this week. We've got some great episodes coming up, so stay tuned and uh, go over and listen to The Energy Gang if you need more of an energy podcast fix. I'm Stephen Lacey. This is The Interchange, conversations on the future of energy from Green Tech Media. Green Tech Media.